Hello, and welcome to United for Peace, Episode 3.3, The Indonesian National Revolution, Part 3. Welcome back. Last time, we went over the main period of active combat during the revolution, along with rapid escalations within Indonesia's internal divisions. Today, we are going to see these internal divisions drag Indonesia to the brink of a nationwide civil war as the army is divided against itself, the army butts heads with the government, and the government butts heads with the nation's radicals. Additionally, we will see the Netherlands' final push to reconquer Indonesia before international pressure finally overwhelmed the kingdom. I want to start today by touching upon the tension between the army and the government, a staple of any good revolution. I want to, but actually the army itself is such a mess that we need to start by examining that closely. At this point, the army consisted broadly of two types of soldier. One who was fervently revolutionary, trained by the Japanese, or at least never trained by a preoccupation institution, and who specialized in guerrilla warfare. The other, formerly of the Dutch colonial army, who tended to be less populist, more concerned with professionalism, and believed the Dutch surrender in 1942 released them from their oath to the crown of the Netherlands. Although the army elected one of the former as its supreme commander in November 1945, the central republican government distrusted this sort to a great extent and favored the latter who came to dominate the general staff and ministry of defense. Again, the supreme commander of the army was of the fiercely revolutionary variety, while his senior staff were of the professionally minded variety, a split further reflected throughout the ranks. And so, the army itself was split between those who would likely side with the government in any showdown, and those who would side with the army if it tried to assert its own dominance. Further complicating the relationship between the army and the government was Amir Siarifuddin's distaste for the zealous revolutionary class of soldiers, which I cannot stress enough includes the supreme commander, so much did he resent anything associated with the Japanese occupation. And he was the Minister of Defense at this point, mind you. I suppose I should finally introduce this Supreme Commander. Sudirman was a pious Muslim born in central Java. He joined a Japanese-sponsored unit known as the Defenders of the Homeland as a battalion commander in 1944. Despite putting down a rebellion of other soldiers, he was arrested by Japanese forces in 1945. When the Declaration of Independence was announced in mid-August, though, he led a breakout from the internment camp he was held in, then proceeded to Jakarta, where he actually met President Sukarno personally. It was not long before he was elected Supreme Commander of the Army on November 12, 1945. It was a close vote, but when he commanded an assault on British and Dutch forces in the central Javanese town of Ambarawa, leading to a British withdrawal, his popularity soared. And now he opposed Siarifuddin for trying to politicize the army along Marxist lines. Marxism was an atheist ideology, after all, and Sudirman was again a pious Muslim. Remember, revolutionary zeal does not necessarily imply radical ideology 
in the Indonesian National Revolution. So, the top civilian and military officials within the realm of national defense actively distrusted one another. This is not a recipe for success, generally. But again, there were elements of the army whose loyalty went to the government above the army itself. Then, you have the military police, which were kind of on neither side. They were, by and large, loyal to Siarifuddin, personally. Stepping into the political arena from here, Siarifuddin expanded his personal power base by gaining the loyalty of many in the national youth groups, taking them and founding the more organized socialist youth. Basically, all the rambunctious young adults that are really into socialism but were not communists would work on his behalf. Building on this, Siarifuddin and Prime Minister Siarifuddin's followers merged to create the Socialist Party in December 1945, the month we apparently could not escape last episode. Although the party split again in 1947 along personal factional lines for Siarifuddin or for Siarifuddin, it would be the primary supporter of the government so long as these two men held on to power. Meanwhile, a few other parties came about around this period. There is Masyumi, the main Islamic political party, composed of two incorporated member organizations. But we really don't have to worry about them. Just know that they were out there, and Islam was a powerful enough political force to get its own party. Second, the Indonesian Nationalist Party was revived in January 1946. Sukarno was not appointed as its chair, despite definitely being its most popular member and, you know, president of the country. However, since he was president, he felt he was supposed to be above politics. And yes, that is just as ridiculously idealistic as it sounds. And now, it is time to return to someone I briefly introduced before, described in Tempo as Father of the Republic of Indonesia and a controversial national hero. Tan Malaka returned from his exile in the Soviet Union in 1942, but he laid low throughout the Japanese occupation. Obviously, they would kill him immediately if they found out who he was. When the Japanese surrendered to the United Nations Allies in August 1945, he revealed his identity in Jakarta, just in time for the revolution. He immediately attracted a large following, and by October 1945, the Communist Party reconstituted itself. Now, however, Malacca had thrown out his old Stalinist ideas in favor of what he called National Communism whereby Indonesia would seek its own path to socialism and a unique formulation to the socialist state. This new party experienced some of its own internal conflict and even clashed with Republican army units in February 1946, though that fighting died down not long after. The clashes followed Tan Malaka's organization of a coalition against Siahir, called the Struggle Union, opposing the Prime Minister's willingness to negotiate with the Dutch. The Communist Party, many youth leaders, including a future Vice President, and most armed irregulars supported this coalition's demand for 100% independence. Ironically, given the presence of youth movement leaders, 
many of Tsiohir and Tsiarifudin's leaders were even present in the coalition. This helped bring Sukarno back to the center of political action. He could appeal to the masses of Java as the only actually Javanese individual among the central republican leaders. Furthermore, he adopted the rhetoric of the radicals while succeeding in quietly supporting the diplomatic sort of approach at that very time being opposed by the struggle union. To borrow a term from Mike Duncan, he became the indispensable man of the revolution, the one to whom people appealed to arbitrate conflicts, and who gave the revolutionary cause a touch of legitimacy. So, you have the Communist Party, led by a familiar national hero, and largely supported in the countryside. The Socialist Party, led by two of the most influential of the Republican elite, and supported by great swaths of the youth movement. And the Nationalist Party, led by the President, and largely supported by the Javanese bureaucracy, and partially Sumatra. And of course, there is also the Islamic Party, Masyumi, running around out there, who will be partially responsible for the organization of armed groups, who will be involved in some ethnic clashes we will see at later times. The socialist-nationalist split bled even into the army, between the rank-and-file, mostly irregular soldiers, and the highly professionalized officer corps of the regular army. Now, of course, these people do not always fall into one camp or the other based on those lines exactly, but that is the general trend. All of this, on top of the military commander's feud with the defense minister, top minister's quasi-coup of the president we've seen, and the division among the radical left. What a mess. With all this turmoil and no apparent end in sight, the conflict in Indonesia was raised in the United Nations for the first time in January 1946, making it one of the first international security issues addressed by the organization. Still after this, the Dutch would go on to arrest the senior revolutionary leadership in South Sulawesi, relieve the British of Bandung, take over Bangka, Belitung, and Riau, and formally take over authority from Southeast Asia Command, except in Java and Sumatra. Although the Battle of Surabaya shattered the idea of a quick, easy reconquest, it did not relieve them of their quest to reconquer. Nonetheless, the now war-weary British continued to press the Dutch to come to some sort of agreement with the Republic, and the Dutch did enter negotiations. In March 1946, Siachir secretly agreed to negotiate with Lieutenant Governor Van Mook under a number of conditions which would draw the ire of many. This included the de facto recognition of Republican sovereignty in Java, Madura, and Sumatra, implying Dutch sovereignty and all other territories of present-day Indonesia. Negotiation also proceeded on the basis of a Republican-Dutch effort to create a federal Indonesia within a Dutch-Indonesian Union. Kind of like, fine, govern yourselves, but uh, you're still subjects of the crown, all right? Negotiations broke down in April, however, as a Dutch election on May 17th made the government unwilling to be seen making any concessions to the Indonesians. 
Oh yeah, and Van Mook decided on his own to set up a federal Indonesia under Dutch control, entirely unilaterally, before any formal agreement or authorization from his government, as if he had a divine mandate to keep inflaming Indonesian hostility. I guess it's one degree better than pushing on with military conquest. But now we reel ourselves back to March 1946, when a chain of political clashes brought Indonesia near the brink of civil war. Though the result ultimately left the republic more unified than ever before. This march was marked by infighting among the left wing of the revolution. Classic. Siachrir and Siarifudin brought together the political capital to yank their followers, especially the armed socialist youth, out of Tan Malaka's struggle union. The same month, the struggle union held a conference in Malang to discuss strategy. How to ensure the revolution carries on with a class character and won't be betrayed by weak elites, how to mainstream armed organization, etc., etc. But Siarifudin sicked the socialist youth and military police on it, arresting the union's leaders, including Malaka, who would be held for two years without trial. This did not put a stop to all radical activity, even for a little bit, however. As the government set up itself in Yogyakarta, members of the opposition naturally flocked to the host city of a rival court, Surakarta. Although a monarch resided in Surakarta, along with a nearby subsidiary prince, the radicals pretty thoroughly took control of the city, as neither of these royal-blooded men had any noteworthy revolutionary skills. Siarifudin and the government tried to quell the organized unrest there, but Suderman, the army's radical supreme commander, stepped in alongside local officers to thwart the effort. On June 1st, 1946, the central government gave in to pressure from the opposition and abolished the prerogatives of Surakarta's regional princes outside of the walls of their own courts, now granting complete control of the city to the radical opposition. This led to more trouble just later that month. After Vice President Hatta elaborated the government's limited negotiating position in a speech on June 27, 1946, radicals in Surakarta arrested Siachrir and other government officials when they stopped after a trip to East Java. They considered this position a betrayal of 100% independence. Now remember, Siachir was Prime Minister of the Republic. Now the radicals in Surakarta believed this move would leave Sukarno, Sudirman, and the other 100 percenters in charge of things. Instead, it prompted Sukarno to declare martial law and demand Siachir's release. Supreme Commander Sudirman, however, refused, creating a tense standoff with Yogyakarta. And so, on June 30th, Sukarno delivered a radio broadcast denouncing this activity, so ruinous to the unity of the nation. As they regularly did, this appeal by Sukarno shook the confidence of the opposition who released Siachrir that night. And then, the government went ahead and arrested several prominent opposition leaders further. 
Sudirman and the army demanded these prisoners be released, taking it upon themselves to do so when the government sat on it. Afterwards, on July 30th, the army sent a delegation to Sukarno demanding he dismiss the entire cabinet and put Sudirman in charge of security affairs. Instead, Sukarno had this entire delegation arrested as well. Government supporters then took it upon themselves to capture about 100 more opposition members. This is now known as the July 3rd Affair. In a moment rather rare for revolutions, the parties involved seemed to generally realize just how close to civil war this brinksmanship had gotten them. Following this, Sudirman adopted a more flexible stance towards the government and independence policies. In return, rather than blame Sudirman, the government blamed the struggle union's founding face, Tan Malaka, for this intense political rivalry. Siachrir, though not domestically popular, was kept around because dismissing him would damage diplomatic efforts. Again, the allies of World War II did not like dealing with former Japanese collaborators, which meant most of the high-ranking Republican officials. All the while, the Dutch continued pursuing their dream of a federal Indonesia-Dutch Union. In July, they held a conference in Malino, South Sulawesi, which was attended by 30 representatives from various Indonesian princes, Christians, and ethnic groups from Kalimantan and East Indonesia. These representatives largely supported a federal state and some form of continued connection to the Netherlands. However, many of the Dutch were surprised in a way only patronizing colonizers can be surprised. It came as a shock to them that the Indonesians actually expected some degree of genuine autonomy. Nevertheless, they hatched plans to form a state in Kalimantan and East Indonesia, beginning a process of federalization. In spite of continuing disagreements, the Netherlands and the Republic of Indonesia finally settled on their first diplomatic agreement in November of 1946. The Dutch didn't really want to do this, but the British were set on withdrawing forces from Java and Sumatra in December, and they insisted that the Dutch reach some sort of agreement before this. The two sides agreed to a ceasefire in Java and Sumatra in October, and on November 12th, the Netherlands recognized the Republic as the de facto authority in Java, Madura, and Sumatra. And they agreed to work together to create a federal United States of Indonesia by January 1st. The Republic would be one of the states, and the Dutch monarch would become the symbolic head of a Dutch-Indonesian union of sovereign states. This compromise did not last long, and ratification in both countries were hotly contested on account of the concessions granted. While November 1946 contained this new peace agreement, the Dutch position in South Sulawesi came under new pressure. Republican youths with new military training returned from their temporary exile in Java. In response, the Dutch dispatched one of their most infamous commanders of the whole conflict, Captain Raymond Westerling. His brutal methods, quickly emulated by other anti-Republican elements, 
killed at least 3,000 Indonesians over the next three months. The Republican youth, especially, suffered debilitating losses. Still, the Dutch pressed on and created the State of East Indonesia at a conference in Denpasar, Bali, in December 1946. Despite the Dutch control, Indonesia Raya was adopted as the new state's anthem, and a pro-Republican politician fell barely short of being elected president, clearly indicating strong nationalist sentiment among the population. Furthermore, the Dutch failed to establish a state for all of Kalimantan on account of the strong pro-Republican sentiments of the Muslims along the south and east coasts. Partially to appease Kalimantan Muslims, the Dutch created yet another state in West Kalimantan under the authority of Sultan Abdul Hamid II of Pontianak. The Republic's diplomatic mouthpiece, Siachir, protested the unilateral creation of these states, but to no avail. Obviously, the Republican distrust for the Dutch deepened on account of these moves. Nonetheless, President Sukarno and Vice President Hatta were determined to get the Lingayati Agreement ratified, that being the November 1946 agreement previously mentioned. Doing so required expanding the National Committee from 200 members to a bloated 514. They packed it with pro-government individuals who formed a new coalition called the Left Wing. This signaled an olive branch to leftist opposition, as the government tried to subsume those who were not necessarily socialist or communist, but remained suspicious of old socioeconomic and political elites. They were still unsure about ratifying the agreement, but did so anyway after Sukarno and Hatta made it clear they would both resign if they failed to do so. The resignation of the indispensable man of the revolution would spell disaster for the Republican cause. And so, the National Committee ratified the agreement in February 1947. Sakhir's Socialist Party no longer dominating on account of this new left wing, he was replaced as Prime Minister by Amir Syarifuddin in July, as Syakhir went to represent the Republic at the United Nations. This occurred in July 1947, and it was about this time that the Dutch, despite the Republic ratification of the November Peace Agreement, launched their first major offensive against them. Dutch leadership concluded back in May that they needed to attack the Republic. The 100,000-strong force of Dutch soldiers in Indonesia was simply unaffordable given the dire post-war economy of the Netherlands. So, sticking to standard imperialist ways of thinking, they didn't decide that withdrawing the force would be the best course of action. No, of course not. They determined the best course of action would be to take back Java so they could win back the profitable sugar-growing land, and Sumatra so they could regain the globally highly sought-after rubber and oil there. Again, in typical imperialist fashion, they figured they could retake all the major Republican-held cities in two weeks and the entirety of Republican territory in a half a year. Just like just about everyone who's ever tried selling anyone else on a war, they argued it would be a quick, easy victory. And like just about every war ever, 
it would be neither quick nor easy, nor would it even be a victory for the Dutch in this case. It might have been all of the above, actually, but as people like to forget, war is inherently political, and so you cannot divorce quote-unquote military reality from external political considerations. The Dutch launched their first police action, quote-unquote, at midnight of July 20th, 1947, and to their credit, the actual military operation was quick and pretty easy for them. They swiftly occupied every deep-water port in Java, along with most major cities, along with their rubber plantations, oil fields, and coal mines of Sumatra. Van Mook wanted to continue on to take Yogyakarta and install a more docile republican regime. The Dutch probably would have done it too if not for the strong diplomatic protests from the United Kingdom and United States of America. This is when the United Nations became directly involved, leaving the Dutch diplomatically cornered and unable to safely achieve their political goals in the end. India and Australia in particular supported the Republicans in the United Nations, along with the Soviet Union. India supported movements for independence from European empires generally, and Australia's population tended to hold strong opinions against Dutch colonialism. It was destabilizing to their backyard. The Soviet Union, of course, always opposed European colonial empires for PR if nothing else. Meanwhile, the USA and the UK, while strong allies of the Netherlands, disagreed with the prevailing mood in Dutch politics, that mood being, of course, that history and common sense gave them the right to determine the destiny of Indonesia's development. Since this was literally not even a full two years after the end of World War II at this time, the USA and UK held, at least nominally, a strong position in favor of the self-determination of peoples, convinced that a strong global commitment to this concept was the only way to prevent the rise of more belligerent despots. Since the Indonesians clearly resisted Dutch attempts to shape their destiny, the USA and UK, upon whom the Dutch relied for most of their post-war reconstruction aid, consistently protested their military operations in Indonesia and urged them to compromise. As the leading powers of the world were more or less in agreement that the Netherlands could not simply dictate the future of Indonesia, the United Nations became a forum for scrutinizing Dutch actions in the archipelago. This put even more pressure on the Netherlands to find a quick solution to the conflict. With all of this pressure mounting, the Dutch felt compelled to accept a UN call for a ceasefire at the end of July. Dutch commanders and Sukarno ordered the ceasefire on August 4th. However, the Dutch continued mop-up operations in areas behind their previous advances. Lots of Republican fighters held out, including, notably, the Stiliwangi Division. Thank you for listening. I hope you will join me next time, as that division plays a critical part in unifying the Republic and the Dutch blunder their way into losing everything, here on United for Peace.